You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading this morning is taken from Romans 2, beginning in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praises is not from man, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Um, Frederick Nietzsche, who was a prominent atheist German philosopher in the early parts to the mid of the 20th century, he saw what he called um, master morality. Um, And he said that that this morality was a way that people sought to do what was right, to do good, but they did it in order to um, lord it over others. They, They created a system where they came out on top. Um, It was for power accrual. In his view, uh, this kind of morality, master morality as he called it, is it's self-determining, it's self-justifying, and it's self-exalting. You get the idea. It's all about self. And as you can imagine, he didn't, he didn't see this as a good thing. He, he didn't see this as something that was good. And, and for our um, interesting part today for us is that the Apostle Paul actually agrees with him. This atheist philosopher from the 20th century, Paul's going to come along and say like, yeah, he was right. And if Paul and Nietzsche are going to agree on something, it's got to at least perk our interest. See, as we've been saying for the past several weeks, the message of Romans is a message of how God forms a new humanity, a, a, a people full of, of the demonstration of the light and life of God's kingdom in and to a broken and brutal world. We're, we're people that are formed by God 
to demonstrate the life, life and light of his kingdom in and to a bro- brutal and broken world. And so as we kind of continue through these first couple of chapters, what Paul is going to great lengths to do is to show us when it comes to our sinful nature, we are all on an even playing field. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. See, after chapter 1, where Paul dedicated his time to proving the guilt of the Gentiles, Paul has now dedicated chapter 2 to the Jews. So we could say chapter 1 was for the irreligious, but chapter 2 is for the religious. It's for those that are within the walls of the church, so to speak. And so this morning, Paul is going to expose how the Jews are practicing what we can call moralism and how we as 21st century Christians can fall into the same deadly pit of moralism. And now you may be saying to yourself, well, Matt, I thought we're supposed to be moral. We're Christians, right? We're supposed to be good and do good things. Um, and so I want to point out there's a, there's a huge difference between being a moral Christian and a moralistic Christian. A moral Christian is going to go ahead and do what is right because they have been approved by God. See, but a moralistic Christian does what is right in order to be approved by God or in order to be approved by others or in order to be approved by themselves. And so Paul is going to point out that the Jews here have, hear me on this, replaced morality for God's fame with moralism in God's name. They've taken true morality, true good works that is supposed to make God famous in the world, and they've replaced it by just doing what they want, doing, yeah, maybe some good things, but they're just slapping God's name on it in order to have power over others, in order to control others, and ultimately it's in order to serve themselves, not God. And this is moralism. It's not Christianity. And so as we work through our text this morning, I want to show you that, this is my main point, that through the gospel, God mortifies our moralism and replaces it with true morality. The gospel mortifies our moralism and and replaces it with true morality. And we'll work through that this morning in three points, starting with moralism's meaning, moralism's magnitude, and moralism's mortification. Meaning, magnitude, mortification. So starting with point number one, moralism's meaning. See, most people are either moralistic or they're religious. We tend towards one way or the other. And as I just mentioned, a moralistic person, that's going to be a person who really takes pride in the good things that they do and their good choices. They, they hold their head, can just kind of puff their chest out a little bit. They hold their head a little bit higher than everyone else because they make the right decisions. See, but a religious person, uh, this, this type of person, they're going to take pride in their association with X over here, X religion. They, they say, well, I'm a Christian. And so that causes them to puff their chest out and hold their head a little bit higher. They say, I, I'm, I'm on the side of the good guys. See, but the Jews were both. The Jews took great pride in their meticulous adherence to the law of God, but they, they also believed that they alone worshiped the true God. And so they attempted to leverage their obedience, their good, good works and their good doings, over and against others, their religiosity over and against others particularly the Gentiles, because they say, well, we're God's chosen people. And so Paul knows his audience, right? He, he calls himself, in Philippians, he calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. And Pharisees were this, like, radically um, religious sect, this really conservative group within Judaism that they were, like, top. If you were a religious person in Judaism and you were, a, you were the top, top. And so Paul is going to go ahead and leverage this knowledge among his readers 
to continue the argument that he began last week at the beginning of chapter 2 that we looked at. And so as we start this morning, picking it up in verse 17 through 20, we see that Paul is going to start by giving us a long list of the so-called benefits of being a Jew, right? Verse 17, they have the law and they boast in God. Verse 18, they know his will and approve what is excellent because they're actually instructed in the law. So it's not, they not only have their Bibles in their laps, but they've actually read the thing. They know what's in there. Verse 19, because they're God's people, they're able to be a guide to the blind and a light in the darkness. Verse 20, uh, they're an instructor to the foolish because they have the truth. See, imagine it's like this. You walk into a dark room uh, with a group of people, and you alone know that like the, the light switch to the room, is really, it's, a, it's across the room, and it's kind of behind a bookshelf. It, it's in a place that only you, no one's just going to stumble upon it. You, you really have to know that it's there. See, you're the one with the truth. You're literally able to be a light in the darkness to these people. You're, you're able to instruct them that, like, hey, this is where the light switch is. This is where you go to turn the lights on. And then they can go and do likewise. And see, this, that was meant to be Israel. Paul's being honest here with these benefits, yet he's also kind of being tongue-in-cheek, right? They, they were the chosen people of God. They were to be his special possession and, and carry this good news out to the world. The, the plan was always that they would be blessed in order to be a blessing. And the Apostle Peter is going to go ahead and take Moses' language from Deuteronomy chapter 7 and elsewhere, and he's going to attribute it to the church. When Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.9, he says, But you, the church, are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's us. That's what we've been called to. And so it's going to help us apply this text a little bit. If we we throw in some kind of 21st century Christian terms here, and imagine Paul's writing like, oh, okay, you call yourself a Christian, so that's something that you boast about, I see. He says, oh, so, so you're able to tell right from wrong because you've got your Bible. You've read it. It's great. You, you think you're a light shining in darkness. You are the city set on a hill, I see. You think you're able to teach everyone else to do just what you do? You can hear it. He's setting us up again, right? Just like the end of chapter one. He's setting us up. And then he comes in with verses 21 and 22 and says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? See, Paul's saying, y'all think you can tell everyone else what to do without doing it yourself. You think you have a pass. He's saying you're a moralist. He's saying you've just created a value system, a master morality where you come out on top. Where, where you simply justify your wrongs, you sweep those things aside, but then you don't offer that grace to anyone else in their wrongs. Tim Keller's going to say it like this. He's going to write, the fatal weakness of moralism is that it cannot protect or prevent the heart from sinning. All it can do is seek to hide it. Moralism is going it, to, it's not going to keep you from sinning. It's going to give you a system where you've got a really good storage system and you can put that thing away. You can put it far away where no one else is going to find it. And if they do, you probably have an excuse. And so there's some debate here. If, if Paul literally means what he's saying, right? If he, if he really means that you steal, you commit adultery, 
Or if he's implying a meaning like Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you, you shall not murder. But I say to you, if, if you've been angry with your brother, if you've insulted, if you've even called him a fool, you've murdered him in your heart. And that's what God looks at. And so Paul may be saying, like, maybe you haven't physically cheated on your wife, but you've lusted. And so it's the same thing. But regardless of how you interpret it, whether, whether it's physical, blatant um, immorality or it's, or it's heart posture, this is hypocrisy. Paul is saying, y'all don't even do what you tell others to do. It's hypocrisy. And so some quick and easy application for us at this point can look like this. Number one, don't flatter yourself and despise others when you're only partly obedient. Don't kind of boast about that. It's like, you know, Pastor Christian used the illustration last week of having the tape recorder around your neck that records all of your moral judgments, and you wouldn't even hold up to half of the things that you make everyone else do. So don't boast about that. Point number two, don't glory in cleaning up the outside when the inside is still a mess. Right? We've all got that one closet in our house. For me, it's my garage because I got that much. But we've got that one closet in our house we're like, we can make the house look real neat and tidy. People are coming over, but that closet, like, you're gonna, you got to lock that thing from the inside. you got to push it all the way shut because it's just got that mess. We don't want anybody to see that, right? Paul's saying you should more rightly be judged by what the contents of that closet than the cleanliness of your house. Or you know, let's just use Jesus' words. He says you're whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, beautiful dead on the inside. All right, so this is, this is moralism. That's what it looks like, but, but why does it matter? Point number two, moralism's magnitude. So in the last three decades, uh, the United States has seen a drastic rise in a demographic called the religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, nuns. It means that these people don't affiliate themselves with any religion. Um, and what researchers are finding out is that, that this is actually a really, really broad trend. Okay? It's, it's in whites, blacks, Hispanics, men and women. Uh, it's in all regions of the country. You see it in the, those with higher educational attainments and those with lower educational attainments. Republicans, Democrats, all across generations. Um, but what is interesting is that researchers are seeing that their growth is most pronounced. So it's everywhere, but it's most pronounced in young adults. And so while older generations, they would have been, you know, maybe ready to attach themselves to Christianity because it provided them with some sort of like moral clout. It, it, it was a good that they could hold on to. It was a commodity like, you know, Joey over here, Joey's a Christian, so that meant that he was a good man. Younger folks, like even if they don't believe it, they, they don't actually see the point in attaching them to Christianity that they don't believe. And so the question has to become why? Well, Derek Thompson, who's a writer for The Atlantic, and he's a religious nun himself, um, self-proclaimed, um, he writes this. He says, the church has lost the public trust in the age of elite failure. They've lost the public trust in the age of elite failure. And he argues that the rise of religious nuns can be traced to younger adults, at least in part, because those born in the 80s and forward have listened to the generations ahead of them in the church. They've listened to their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents in the church. I'm talking in the church, not the world, in the church. Tell them what Christian morality looks like and then not do it. 
And so younger generations, they've seen the sexual abuse scandals in the church and the fact that the church is trying to cover them up. They've seen the prolific adultery in the church, the fact that a pastor can uh, sleep with someone in his congregation, uh, cheat on his wife, sleep with a woman. They get rightfully excommunicated. And then pastor picks up, goes down the street, around the corner, maybe neighboring city, starts a new ministry, and he's welcomed with open arms. They've seen that, what are you guys doing here? They've seen through the pages of history that Christianity not only um, was complicit, but helped um, kind of move forward race-based chattel slavery in the United States of America. They've seen it. The curtain's been pulled back. And, and so you may be saying like, well, but Matt, that didn't happen here. That didn't happen in our church. That, di- that didn't happen in the church I grew up in. And you know, that may be true. And you know, praise be to God for that. Um, but we need to acknowledge that we live in the most interconnected society in human history. And so the things that happened across the country, around the world, across time, by people that, that claim the name of Christ, they need to be addressed by us. See, we need to speak and act rightly about what God calls good and what God calls evil. And so the actions of of these professing Christians, they may not have happened here, but they have influence here. In our our pews, in in our city. So the point is this. Folks have witnessed Christian leaders in the church not doing the things that they say that you should do and doing the things that they say you shouldn't. And it puts people off to Christianity before they even hear the claim. They're not even going to listen. James Baldwin's going to say it like this. He's going to say, as soon as this preacher starts to speak up, I start to tune out. Because he says, I've been behind the curtain. I've seen the hypocrisy. It's no different than the rest of the world. Paul puts it in verse 21. They teach others, but they don't teach themselves. And you know, the magnitude of this is obviously the lost are not going to get saved because they're put off by the claims before they even hear them. But I'll tell you what, that pales in comparison to the magnitude of moralism in that we are defaming God's name. We are dishonoring him. He is not getting the glory that he is due when we are moralistic. Look with me in verses 23 and 24. Paul writes, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So here Paul is referring to um, Isaiah 52 and Ezekiel 36. And in both of these places, uh, God's name is being despised or blasphemed or, or profaned by the Gentiles because God's people were exiled, because they were taken out. So Ezekiel 36 says this, Ezekiel 36, 20. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, in that the people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out from his land. See, God's name was being dragged through the mud because the nations were saying, like, look, this, this Yahweh, this Yahweh who, who liberated Israel out of Egypt by his mighty right arm, who, who uh, parted the, the waters of the sea, that his people would walk through on dry land, that led them by a pillar of fire and cloud, that, that gave them food in the wilderness, that has removed their enemies. I guess he's not all-powerful. I guess he's not 
completely good because he's, he let his people get exiled. See, here Paul is saying the same thing is happening, but now it's not happening because the people were conquered, but because they were complicit. His name is getting run through the mud by outsiders because, listen to this, his own people don't even honor it. Or as F.F. Bruce is going to put it, he says, now it's not his people's misfortune, but their misconduct that causes the Gentiles to conclude that the God of such a people cannot be of much account. See, the world is watching, and they're making judgments about the God that we serve based upon how we act in the world. And they may be saying, based upon what they look at, this God is not of much account. And it comes down to the fact that we as Christians, we, we bear the name of God, right? We bear Christ's name upon us. And so what does it mean to bear his name? Well, in the Old Testament, right, the commandment says, you shall not take the Lord your God's name in vain. And we often, you know, associate that as like, we should not attach God's name to a cuss word. I'm not advocating that. We should not do that. But it means far more than that. To bear his name, to take his name, it really means to like kind of wear it, to carry it. You shouldn't call yourself associated to him in vain. And so when we are adopted into the family of Christ by faith, we take upon us the family name. It's like my children, my, my two boys, uh, they came out of the womb and they were bogus immediately. They took upon our name. And so when, when my son James is really doing well in school and his, his, his behavior's on point and he's making good decisions, you know, people are going, ooh, those bogus. They got that thing together. They're going to they're speak well of us because of his actions, but if he is just being a terror, if he is just ruining everything, they're going to look at him and go like, man, those bogus don't know what way is up. Because whether it's true or not, his actions are going to bear upon how, what people think of us. And it's the same for us as Christians. Carmen Imes says it like this in her book. She says, when Christians fail to live uprightly, it has the same effect as Israel's disobedience in the Old Testament. The name is blasphemed. Throughout the New Testament, believers' behavior affect Jesus' reputation. Our actions and our inactions are going to either bring glory to God's name or disrepute. No way around it. And this leads us now to, to verses 25 through 27, where we read, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. All right, there's a lot going on here, um, and it's really just like a mouthful to read it. And so it would be really easy to get bogged down, but I'll give you the spark notes. Basically, what Paul is saying is this. A non-Christian who does what is right is closer to true Christianity than a Christian who knowingly does what is wrong. A non-Christian who is doing what is right is closer to true Christianity than a Christian who knowingly does what is wrong. And to illustrate, let me read a quote uh, by an author. His name is Ta-Nehisi Coates, and he wrote this. He says, I've been with my spouse for almost 15 years. In those years, I've never been with anyone but the mother of my son, but that's not because I'm an especially good and true person. In fact, I am wholly in possession of an imaginably filthy and mongrel mind. 
but I'm also a dude who believes in guardrails. I don't believe in getting in the moment and then exercising willpower. I believe in avoiding the moment. I believe in being absolutely clear with myself about why I am having a second drink and why I am not. Why I am going to a party and why I am not. I believe that the battle is lost at happy hour, not at the hotel. I'm not a good man, but I am prepared to be an honorable one. And so what Paul is saying, so Coates, he's a self-proclaimed atheist. And what Paul is saying is that this man's actions, this atheist's actions are actually closer to Christianity than a lot of Christians I know. See, see, we think that our claiming Christ, our claiming Christianity, or the Jews, they thought that their circumcision, this was going to be enough reason that they'll be able to be saved on the last day. They thought that they weren't too worried about actually living the life they've been called to. They just said, if I could just slide in through that door on the first day, then I don't have to worry about my actions in the room. See, it's as if we were to say, well, you know, I was baptized as a kid, so I'm good now. Or, or, you know, I prayed a prayer at camp. Or, or, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. That must have, like, kind of rubbed off on me. I'm like, I'm in by association, right? Or, like, Lord, help us. I'm an American, and we're a Christian nation and all. See, none of these things are necessarily bad. But listen to me here. It's like the Backstreet Boys said. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you're from. I don't care what you did as long as you love me. Right? God does not want your religiosity. He wants your heart. It has always been that way. He wants your worth not to be placed in anything that you've done, past, present, or future, and everything that Christ has done for you and is for you right now. All right, so point number three, and then we're done. Point number three, moralism's mortification. All right, so at this point, you may be saying, all right, Matt, I get it. I got to tighten it up. I got to tighten it up a little bit. You know what? No one's going to defame Christ on account of me. His name ain't going to be run through the mud because of me. And so this is why point number three is actually really, really important. Because if I left you now, all I'd leave you with is another kind of master morality. You, you'd just have a new value system, a new set of rules to go and follow and you wouldn't actually be changed. Well, all we ever do is just move our master morality from one thing to another to or, in order to boast, our, boast about, you know? Inevitably, we're going to fall back into the same system. We're going to try as hard as we can, find out that we can't do it well enough, and then we're going to make excuses for our shortcomings while not handing that over to anyone else. 99 out of 100 might be an A-plus in your geometry class, but it is a fail when it comes to making yourself righteous before God. See, we must completely mortify our moralism. Now, I realize that mortify is not really a word that we use that often, so I want to stop here and define it. Mortify means embarrassed or humiliated or ashamed or, or kind of found out, exposed. So it's like, it's like at the end of The Wizard of Oz, where Dorothy and crew, they're like standing there before the great and powerful Oz, right? Like the hologram's up, the, the fire's going, it's a loud, booming voice. But then what's ha- what happens? The curtain gets pulled back. You find out it's just a dude with a microphone. See, he's found out. He's exposed for the fraud that he is. He's, he's seen. He, he, he's mortified. He's embarrassed. See, we must 
mortify our moralism. But the question has to become, well, what or who is going to come and do this for us? I, I clearly can't do it on my own, so, so how do I do it? Well, let me steal some words from the Apostle Paul a little bit later in this letter where he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verses 28 and 29 say, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So here we we really get to the heart of it. Paul is showing all the Jews that they thought their religiosity, they thought that their their law-keeping, that was going to be the thing that proved that they were God's people. That was going to be the thing that saved them on the last day, all these outward shows. But through the whole story of the Bible, and I need you to listen to me, the whole story of the Bible, we see that God is not primarily interested with what happens on the outside, but on the inside. Now, don't misunderstand me. God is interested and concerned with what happens on the outside, but the witness of the Bible is that if God has a hold of your heart, if he, has, if he has circumcised it, if he has written his name on it with his own hand, then the works on the outside are going to happen because of what has taken place on the inside. We are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith which remains alone. It's always been that way. Now see, though, circumcision involves something quite literally being cut off. And it really was a physical sign of being one of God's people, being, being one that bears his name. It really was a sign given to the Jews. But as Martin Luther is going to put it, he says, only he is a genuine Jew who is one inwardly, that is, who believes in Christ. See, Jesus Christ, um, the God-man, was, he was cut off. He, he has become our circumcision, He was cut off from God's goodness, from his mercy, and he bore an eternity of wrath for us in our place. But why? It's so that we could be in. He was cut off so that we could be brought in, so that we could, by faith, have the family name written upon our hearts. See, the curtain was pulled back on God. In fact, the veil was torn. He did it himself from top to bottom. But behind it, we don't find a fraud We find a gracious and a merciful God. We find someone who is far more moral than any of our moralism could ever accomplish, and yet far more gracious than any of our moralism is willing to believe. We we find one who who came and was cut off for us, and now we don't don't flaunt our our circumcision. We we, we can't flaunt our religiosity, our good works. We flaunt Christ and Him crucified a stumbling block to the religious, and foolishness to the irreligious. See, only through the gospel of God's grace can our moralism be turned into true morality. Only through this gospel of God's grace can our moralism be shown for for the fraud that it really is. Right? The, The curtain's been pulled back. We can't go back. We can't unsee it. Only through this gospel of God's grace to us can our moralism be replaced with true morality that is humble and repentant and seeking to do what is right. But hear me for this. Not for our own gain, but for the good of others and the glory of God. Only when we see that our worth and our value and our honor comes from Jesus himself 
right? Our, our real righteousness, our true circumcision. Will our moralism in God's name be turned into true morality for God's fame? And this is, this is our hope, friends. This is our only hope. That Christ has done it. And he will bring us home. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we...